Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Certified Forgotten. I am one half of your mats. My name is Matthew Monagle. I'm a, a film critic, a writer, and co-host of this podcast. And I'm joined, as always, by the premier Matt, the number one Matt, the Matt who bitched about being called the other Matt the last time we did this episode, uh, Matt Donato. Hello, buddy. How you doing? Number one in listeners' hearts, number one on film Twitter. That's correct. There are literally no other mats that rank above you. Solar Sites can go fuck himself. Singer can go fuck himself. It's Matt Donato all the time. Number one, baby. Uh, so that's us. That's what we do. We swear. We talk about films. Um, and for this particular episode of the podcast, we've decided to bring in somebody who we know that also swears and talks about films. So let's uh, let's let's not make him wait any longer, Matt. Would you please introduce our amazing guest? Yes. With us today, we have good friend, person I love very dearly, and one of the... Wait, what is your official title, Brad? Just to let the people know from Telerod Horror Fest. Uh, programmer, uh, host, trivia guy. Jack of all trades of the Telluride <laughs> Horror Festival. Renaissance fan. Mr. Brad McCarg. Thank you for having me, guys. And I pronounced your name right. You did. You did. It is not McCargue for everyone who has read his name on the internet for so long. And like I did, pronounced it McCargue. <laughs> Ignore the UE. It is a worthless edition. So, Brad, you've listened to every episode of our show, um, because of course you have, because what kind of a friend would you be if you hadn't? Uh, so you already know that the point of Certified Forgotten is to talk about movies that are a little underseen and underrepresented on Rotten Tomatoes, but you also know, because you're a kind and supportive friend, that we always like to start by talking about our guest's background with the horror genre. So let's talk about that, because we I actually don't know this story for you. I don't know how your love of the genre began. I don't know where that comes from. So... Take us back to the early days. What was your first introduction to horror as a genre? Oh, man. Uh, I honestly can't remember. Uh, I remember probably when I was 10, 11, 12, I would always go to the video store with my mom, you know, on the weekends when they wanted to rent a movie for the night. And uh, she would browse the new releases, and I would just head straight to the little closed-off horror section at Video Library or Hollywood Video. Not really Blockbuster. But, um, and I would just look at all the box covers and, uh, occasionally I would get to rent some, I think my earliest like introductions to horror were the Friday the 13th series. Um, anything that kind of came on late night cable. I remember one night watching <laughs> of all films, Frankenhooker with my dad when I was like 12. Sure, um, sure. and it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, I, I've I've always loved horror. Uh, I didn't really get into writing about it until 2008 or so when I was uh, uh, about to graduate from grad school. And it just kind of snowballed from there into writing for some of the bigger websites out there, doing screenwriting, and that snowballed. So uh, here we are. <laughs> I love how the box art is always a recurring theme in when people talk about their introduction to horror. Like, I think Melissa and a few other people said the same thing you did. They're like, yep, I went right for the box covers because it's like horror had all these fun images to look at and these weird, bright, colorful things. So I, I just love yeah. that that keeps coming up. Yeah, and there's always two that uh, that stood out in my mind. And it was always Waxwork because the box art is crazy. And April Fool's Day. April, wait, I'm trying to remember April Fool's Day. I, That's the noose, right? The noose yeah, the, the, the noose in her yeah, hair. Yeah. I don't know why those two stick in my head. I just remember, shit, I even remember 
walking into the horror section and waxwork was almost immediately on the right because it was w and all the a's started on the left and april fool's day was on like that first shelf right there on the left so this was like a pension span thing too <laughs> it was like what are the first <laughs> ones i see i decided yeah i mean it's just funny how uh how those memories just come flooding back um and now i kind of wish video stores were still around but that's what Netflix is for, and you can browse the posters there that are all generically created by digital cre- uh, creators. <laughs> Matt, Matt uh, we're we're sponsored by Disney Plus on this podcast. Oh, right. We Sorry, about- we've been bought out. Yeah, we didn't announce that yet. That, that's okay. <laughs> uh, so, Brad, you talk about your writing, and I know you've actually you've worn a couple of different hats in your you know air, air quotes. You can see me doing my fingers thing. Professional career, you know. Um, talk to me, kind of about film criticism and. Ultimately, I guess I'm curious, why did you leave that? Why did you decide that, that writing about film as a critic was something that was less interesting to you than getting involved in the programming side and, and helping run a film festival? Yeah, so um, so I got into to writing about horror films primarily on just my little blog. I love horror way back in 2008, 2009. And then um, it caught the attention of some people in the industry, uh, you know, that I'm still friends with to this day. And through them, I got uh, a lot of opportunities. You know, I think I've had reviews or written in, you know, uh, Bloody Dread, Shock Till You Drop when it was still around and um, Fangoria all at differing different points uh, throughout my uh, my career. And um and, you know, those all led to other opportunities. So I ended up uh, starting a little film blog when I lived in Denver. And that's how I ended up attending the Telluride Horror Show. Um, and then that just snowballed. And then it just got to the point where I just got to, to you know, really jump ahead in, in this whole, you know, I love writing about films type thing to, to I was just done with it. I just didn't want to do it anymore. I, w- I had no time to do it. Um, I'm a slow writer. It takes me a very long time to get things done. And I can never really tell if anyone was reading my stuff. So it kind of became a sort of like, I'm just kind of burnt out on this. So I stopped, but I ended up shifting focus eventually to uh, screenwriting. And now uh, with my girlfriend, I am making short films and trying to get features off the ground and all that. So I, you know, I traded one form of writing for another or one creative outlet for another uh, but still very well, uh, still very much involved in the film industry, be it through uh, working for a film festival or just attending film festivals. I was lucky enough to be on the jury here at the North Bend Film Fest outside of Seattle. So uh, still dipping my toes in the waters in a variety of capacities. Um, I have no idea if I answered your question, kind of went off on a tangent there, but I hope that. Yeah, you did. <laughs> and, and I should say real quick, the only reason that I said the air quotes professional career is because you like both Matt and myself are a writer who has an, an entirely separate career, kind of like the, the pay the bills thing. So, mm. um, you know, it's always interesting to me to talk about how people are, have managed to balance and, and keep that alive. Um, and it seems that the variety of hats that you've worn in the film industry has managed to keep your appreciation, your love of the horror genre evolving over time and keeps you wanting to stay connected to the community, which I think is really cool. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I've made so many amazing friends through writing about horror films and attending Fantastic Fest and, you know, finally meeting you guys. And, you know, I consider you guys as well as the many other people that we converse with on a daily basis online, you know, some of my uh, my, my best friends out there. 
because we all have that, you know, that common bond, uh, that, that one commonality, uh, in horror films and just a general love of weird cinema that, um, you know, keeps us coming back for more. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a fun, fun arena, even if you're not actively involved in it. Yeah. And like, I can definitely go with you as well on the whole, like writing is fun to get me wrong. And I wouldn't do it if I didn't love and was, or at least be passionate about what I do. But if I didn't have Fantastic Fest, if I didn't have all the relationships I've made, if I didn't have like all the things that come along with writing, like I think I probably would have burned out too by now. I, I don't know how I haven't personally uh, balancing the day job. You're a robot. Yeah, I don't know. I can yeah, I can write quickly. So that's the one thing I have in my favor. My reviews take me maybe like 45 minutes to an hour to write. And then what oh like one or two proofs after that and they're done. Um, yeah, but I mean, so that's one thing that does help me. But seriously, I mean, the community, I can't stress enough how how beneficial that's been to my life and like how it's helped me find my own place in the world. Because I still talk to so many people and even like the dumbest crap, like when I was doing online dating and crap like that, and you'd meet someone and they'd be like, oh, I saw like that you watch horror movies in your profile. And I'd be like, yeah, you know, I'm really passionate about it, actually. And they'd be like, oh, I can't even watch trailers like that. Those are the worst things ever. And I'm just like, you realize more and more that there is such a small subset of people that actually love horror as much as we do. So when you find people like us, I don't know, like writing opens up those doors to me. So like, I don't want to lose that like ever. Yeah, no, I mean, it just the writing component, even though I don't do it anymore in a quote unquote professional capacity, um, you know, it, it got me the opportunity to work for Telluride, which allowed me to meet Becky. And now I live with her and, and it's phenomenal. And she loves horror movies even more than I do. And we're making movies together. So it's, you know, all the all these great things came out of it, even if there are times in the past or even now where it's just like, I can't believe I ever did that. Uh, no one ever read my stuff, but in the end, it's for me at least. It's it's less the the impact my writing had, and more just the to to be cheesy the friendships I made along the way. Oh. Mm. And also, you prove that age old comeback of well, film critics are just critics because they can't create on their own, and it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> I have plenty <laughs> of friends that went into space that do the creating. Well, let's let's find out uh, what the, right. the, the response is to the stuff that I create before we say that. <laughs> We'll wait for that. That's a good point. Wait until I post my negative review. <laughs> Matt, you write negative reviews? I'm just kidding. Oh. We'll just put a red filter over everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as long as you put red in every scene and make that the main color, like I'll be into it. Don't worry about it. And also, Monocle, fuck you. That's fair. That's more than fair. Um. We're going to actually, the the theme of that writer creator uh, is going to play really hugely into our conversation about this film, I think. But um, one last question for you, sort of before we dive into that conversation, you know, now that you are a programmer, now that you're involved in screening and pre-screening a lot of films and helping identify stuff for a horror film festival, like where are you finding things that are interesting and exciting for you? Like where are you finding movies that everybody is talking about, you know, oh, horror genre is better than it's ever been. And we all agree. Otherwise we wouldn't probably be writing about it as much as we did, but like, where do you find the films that get you excited? Are they referrals? Are they things that you're seeing at festivals? Like what's your source? Yeah. Um, mostly film festivals. I mean, I mean, as you guys, I'm sure are very well aware that we're very lucky to be able to see a lot of these films before a lot of other people end up getting to see them. Um, 
But that's actually a really great question within the context of this movie, because this movie, seven years ago now, uh, a little over seven years ago, when we were in the uh, the middle of programming for, um, for Telluride in 2012, was submitted via Raven Banner. They gave us a handful of films, and they were like, uh, feel free to check these out. Uh, we're trying to get them out there, you know. Let us let us know what you think, and I popped in the Last Will and Testament of Rosalind Lee on my uh, on my la- on my computer, and I'm sitting there with the lights off, hunched over, watching it, and just blown away by it. Um, and that ended up being one of the big films that championed throughout 2012 and into 2013, when I think it finally came out. Um, so a lot of it is just you know the the standard submission process, a uh, little bit of just hearing what people are saying about all these films and then finally diving into them. Um, I, nothing, nothing crazy, <laughs> uh, to be completely honest. Uh, just your basic run-of-the-mill submission process, usually. Yeah, but I mean, like, that's a really good point, though, and it's something that uh, Anya Stanley brought up on a Twitter thread that she retweets every so often, too, which is good. But basically, she, and she included you on it, too. Mm-hmm. Her thing was kind of, Definitely, if you're into discovering horror, follow horror festival programmers, not just critics, because, I mean, we can only see so much at these festivals and we do what we can. I mean, even thinking back on my output, you know, when I first went to Fantastic Fest the first few years, I didn't really know anyone. So all I was doing was movies. And yeah, I was walking out of there, you know, 30 movies deep, 40 movies deep. But now it's kind of like I have friends. I want to do other things at Fantastic Fest and I'm maybe only seeing 20 but the programmers are the ones that see everything. The programmers have had their hand in everything. And not only that, but even if something doesn't get programmed that, that a one personal programmer likes, they'll still support it. So I do love this idea that like horror programmers are the ones that we should probably be like turning to for the best <laughs> recommendations. Uh, yeah, I think I think the the fun thing about being a horror programmer is like I'm I'm always and as you guys know, just in my general personality and my opinions on films, I'm always kind of the outlier. I, I kind of go against the grain or don't align with the consensus on a film. And that's an you know, affectionate way of saying that you're kind of a grump, Brad, which is a- adorably true. I am not grumpy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, um, Becky's helped that <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, but um, no, it's, it's, I think the, uh, a good recent example is with uh, Coco D Coco day, which has just freaking played everywhere. Now it was just, it's, just blowing up in terms of uh, where it was playing but almost everyone i've talked to was not a fan of it but it is very much my shit and if it weren't for film festivals i would never have had the opportunity to see it and it is just it's weird it's crazy uh it it does a lot of just bizarre stuff it doesn't really have a traditional strict narrative which those are the types of movies i'm generally drawn to and uh you know i kind of feel like uh, rosalind lee is sort of like that in a way but you know just being able to see these movies and champion them uh even if i'm the only one who is just like you know you guys need to see this movie it's absolutely amazing and i'm giving a lot of shit for it like i usually am um hey, you know i'm talk- okay with- you're talking I'm- to a guy that likes the gallows <laughs> Hey man, like like in the end, it's like like what you like. Uh, I was actually having this conversation yesterday where it was like I know a lot of people are like 
they'll they'll see a horror film and they'll be like, oh, my God, that was the greatest movie I've ever seen. That was one of the the best horror films in recent memory. And then a week later, they say the exact same thing (laughs) about another film. And I'm like, you guys need to rein it in a little bit. Well, I think that's. That starts a conversation about who's saying it and what access they're getting True. and what they're trying to keep up. <laughs> I think more than I, that's a whole different conversation about the current state of the film mm-hmm. criticism community and wanting to be quoted. And like, yes, I know yeah. the joke is always mm-hmm. that like I get poll quoted all the time. But the thing is, I'm watching a shit ton of movies. And if I like something, I like it. Also, sadly, you know, like if I don't like something like Satanic Mm. Panic, I'm not staying silent on it. Like I'm definitely my negative reviews out there. So I I think it's dancing that line of like, who are we trusting to say every horror movie that comes out is the next best thing in horror versus who's like, yeah, that's good. Mm -hmm. Well, it I think a lot of it is at least from my perspective is there's maybe one movie a year that I will just throw all my weight behind and champion as you know an absolutely amazing film and this this year it was coco de coco day um saw the listeners you need to go find a way to see that because it's incredible and back in 2012 2013 it was the last one tell someone of rosalind lee um because it was just it's just that sort of film you know again it comes down to it's very much my shit and when it's very much your shit it's the type of film you just want to you want to go to bat for, and I feel like a lot of people tend to go to bat for too many movies, and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing, but I feel like there's no real distinction between this is a great movie and this is a great movie to me. Like there's there's a personal resonation, or it resonates with me on a personal level, uh, so I'm going to champion it and. I know that's it's kind of a foolish argument and it's maybe trying to find the bad within a whole host of good, but I feel like it allows you to kind of understand a person's taste a little bit better and it allows you to maybe gain some insight into why someone thinks a certain movie is so good. It kind of informs her personality in a way, if that makes sense. Well, I would say too, Brad, part of that is, is volume, right? Like, and, you know, we are, there are people that are like, we're inundated in really great horror right now. So I'm going to champion it all, which is a totally valid approach. But, you know, I, it's the old Incredibles quote, when everything is special, nothing is. And it's really hard because we have so much good stuff to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff. And that's going all the way back to the point you made earlier, Matt, about your reviews. I think part of the reason why, you know, we joke about Matt getting pull quoted is because you see everything. You see the movies that have less than five reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, which is why this podcast exists. So I kind of am of the opinion where it takes both types. We need, we need the brads of the world who are going to be like, if I find one movie I like, that's all you're going to hear about. But then we also need people that are seeing everything and and sharing everything. It's not that you're not seeing everything. It's just, you know, there, you, you need the people that are sort of like, here's everything that should be talked about. And then a few people like Brad that are basically like, yeah, but here's the, here's the ones you really need to see. Yeah, and I just looked it up, and Coco de Coco da does have, I think it has distribution already, and it came out mm-hmm. in November, or it's coming out soon. So those of you who do want to see it, look out for it on VOD, and if you live in Los Angeles and New York, you can see it there. Nice. And prepare to cry. It's sad. Or yell at Brad. You can yell at me, too. <laughs> I'm okay, I'm okay with it. many of I'm our okay friends it. did it. <laughs> 
Coco D, Coco D, life goes on. <laughs> all fantastic fest. Right. I couldn't get that no, out done. of my all head. Right. All right, moving on. Uh, this feels like a good point. This feels like a good natural segue into the topic of today's podcast, which is the last will and testament of Rosalind Lee. Um, last will and testament, as Brad alluded to earlier, came out in 2013. Uh, it is a film. Uh, it's it basically it is a two person and really just a one person film. Uh, you have one actor who's played a character named Leon, who's played by Aaron Poole, who is revisiting his childhood house after his mother has died and kind of refamiliarizing himself with the surroundings. Uh, you have the voice of Vanessa Redgrave, who's plays the late Rosalind Lee, whose voice sort of guides. Um, us, not him, through the house and understand his relationships to the objects that he's seeing. And the film itself uh, kind of plays out as a ghost story. It plays out as, as a religious allegory um, and kind of this bittersweet horror film. We're going to talk about that a little bit, uh, a lot of bit in detail, and we're going to break down kind of the, the different pieces of that. But I think one thing that's worth mentioning, uh, one thing that's interesting about this is that this was written and directed by Rodrigo Godinho, who it was uh, is best known in the horror community as one of the people that founded Rue Morgue magazine. So, you know, to the conversation we were having earlier, this is a debut film from someone who was not a not doesn't have the background, doesn't have the the history as a filmmaker, who has the history of, of a critic and an analyst and, and a writer. Um, so, Brad, I'm going to start the conversation with you. I'm actually going to ask you as somebody that has gone through that process now of going from a writer to a creative to somebody that's creating film. You know, what is it about this film that resonates for you and why 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 is this such a good first feature? It's different. I know that is maybe not the greatest answer in the world. Um I feel like there are a lot of great movies out there that do a lot of the same and that's not uh that's that's not bad in any way shape or form um you know every story has been told in some capacity but i feel like it took a, a, a basic setup of um you know death in the family and coming to grips with it and wrestling with uh you know the demons of the past as it were uh, and it does it in a very unique way. Um, it's not traditional in the sense that it's super straightforward. And like, I mean, most of the dialogue is voiceover, which is, you know, cardinal sin of screenwriting. Don't have voiceover because it really works. And it somehow works. I mean, part of that is due to Vanessa Redgrave just being absolutely amazing at it. But it's the way I described it in my review when I reviewed it, God knows how long ago was, uh, you know, I kind of described it like a double helix where you have these two stories that are unfolding that inform each other in a very unique way. So Brad, can I interrupt you there? Yeah, certainly. Uh, let me quote you from your original Dread Central review okay. in 2012. <laughs> the film's two narratives twist and turn around each other like a double helix, yep. never intersecting, yet connected by a theme that sees it reach heights rarely attained in contemporary horror. That's you. Mm -hmm. What do you think of what you said? I agree. Great. You know, I, <laughs> I mean, let me, let, me, let me rephrase that. I still agree. Even after having rewatched the movie for the first time in a couple years now, uh, earlier today, uh, in preparation for this, um, it it tells the tells these two unique stories of a woman whose life was 
both ruined and given meaning by religion and her coming to grips with that almost as like as a ghost basically and her son whose life was ruined by religion and coming to grips with uh accepting that he doesn't need to to believe in this to 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 move on to live his life which is the exact opposite of what his mother uh tried to get him to believe and i believe that the just the way the film is is presented with this mix of a voiceover as leon is moving through the home and discovering these little little things about it uh involving his mother you know buying up all all of the antiques that he was selling um and he you know he kind of comes home to a living museum of his life and the way everything just sort of twists and turns and just kind of reaches this apex at the end where each character, uh, they, they, they fully understand everything. They, they, how do, how do I even describe it? They, um, uh, each, each, each character gets that catharsis almost in a way, but on two completely opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, and, and we can, um, as this conversation evolves, we, we can and we should talk about it um, in spoiler terms. So we'll get there. We'll give people a little bit more of the kind of the broad impressions before we dive into some of the details. But yeah, I, one of the things that strikes me about the film, and you kind of hinted or you said this earlier in your um, conversation, is just how simple it is, right? Like it is a, Rodrigo in interviews talks about, you know, the funding of this and kind of having some old screenplay ideas, some short ideas that he wanted to expand a little bit. And it does have that feeling of um, kind of hard to articulate, but easy to see that feeling of a short that has been expanded to a feature film length. Um, A lot of times I sort of associate that with, with an idea, like a central conceit that they seem to be playing with. And in this case, to what you're saying, it definitely that, that idea that, that there are, it's only him and it's only her voice. And that, double helix that these two things are operating in parallel but independently um that does feel like something that's been blown up and expanded on for the feature length but it is it is something i think that makes um this stand out and i think i have a very specific read on the film that i'll get to in a little bit but i think that that's something that makes this um interesting is just we're used to ghost stories and we're used to you know ideas of the characters communicating or trying to communicate with other characters but it isn't often that we get to see ships passing in the night right like it isn't it isn't a lot i mean i i wonder having not seen it if this is kind of the emotional catharsis that you feel when you go through ghost story the casey affleck film um kind of this idea of a presence that is present but not present at the same time uh is this the terrible part where i say i actually haven't seen a ghost story yet well, Donato, if you haven't seen it, then I'm just going to scrub this from the, the I, I indeed have together. seen a ghost story, yes. Okay. All right. How do you feel? Compare ghost story. Start your part of the conversation by comparing Rosalind Lee to ghost story. That's that's an interesting one because I didn't think about it at all watching um, The Last Will and Testament. But I do kind of see what you're saying because we're addressing these stories, as you said, from the beyond. Uh, as Vanessa Redgrave is talking, she is talking as a deceased woman and... So to me, like, I kind of thought they were letters that were going to be, like, read later. I, I, I kind of thought the narrative was going a little way, and especially the narration. But in getting what we know and getting where we get and knowing that, yeah, she's just kind of thinking out loud as a presence watching her estranged son, we can say, 
be in the house and see all these memories again and have things dredged up, it does compare a lot to a ghost story. And I, you know what? Honestly, I think they're both equally effective because I did have a large, uh, or sorry, a ghost story had a large impact on me and it really hit that life and death afterlife whole conversation really on the head and kind of like what it all means. And I loved uh, Last Will and Testament. I, I can say that 100%. Like, I really, really was into the storytelling, the unconventional nature, as Brad alluded to before, just hearing someone addressing their entire life from beyond the grave and not being able to do anything about it and, like, having regrets and having things they wish they did differently. And w- we can get into the spoiler territory, like, later. I really want to talk about the last lines of the film, even. But comparatively... I would love to play a ghost story and the last whole Testament back to back just has this double feature of addressing what happens in the, you know, after all this. And I'm not even saying I believe in it. Like I'm not even saying I'm a religious person and that's something that, you know, I think about often in life, but these are two movies and especially the last will and Testament. It's a horror movie that makes you think, and it's a horror movie that really gets right to the core of a lot of conversations that, I have with myself that keep me up at night and it's so well told. It's just such a well-told story and the way that it is unconventional, but works so tremendously, it's definitely attributed to the direction. It's attributed to the craft. And I think a great double bill, honestly, would be doing the last one Testament of Rosalind Lee and then following that with um, the witch in the window and just having these two emotionally strong horror films playing together. I, I couldn't think about how that could be like a better pairing. Does a ghost story deal with uh, issues of faith? So that's where it gets a little murkier. I was going to say it it doesn't that much, right, Matt? It's more just about life and death. I haven't seen it. Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, you haven't seen it. This whole part of the conversation is hinging on you, buddy. Okay. Yes. So to my recollection, I'm not saying I remember it 100% correctly because it's been a little while and I've seen hundreds of movies since then. But no, it's not as much about religion as it is just about like our bodies being here and then decomposing and being God. That's more a ghost story and just trying to come to terms with that and how much all of this means. <laughs> not to be a downer and not to be like one of those people, but that's more a ghost story where, agreed, Rosalind Lee is way more about the religion. And I will say that usually religious-based horror for me is a big hit and miss. I think you can use religion as something that shapes character motivations in a way and really fail. It just can be a reason at points. It's not explored that well. But what Rosalind Lee does best is take religion and show how it shaped the the title character and showed how it influenced her and what it did to the relationship with her and her son. Mm -hmm. It's so impactful and so emotional. And I think that's... That's some of the best storytelling in the entire film. Yeah, I want to jump on that. Uh, we're at past the 30-minute mark now, so I feel like we can ramp up some of the spoiler talk in this. Um, I think what's most interesting to me about Rosalind Lee is, to the point you were saying, Matt, you, know, you think that this is going to be a film about spiritual warfare, right? This is a movie that is setting up angels and demons, and so you're like, okay, there are going to be these religious forces that are acting upon um, Leon and that are, you know, he's going to some sort of battle for the soul of his mother, maybe, or some kind of thing. When you go into that, you're like, all right, I see kind of where they're setting this up. And the 
role that religion plays in this film is much more about the distance between the two of them. The religious stuff itself, it's there. It's not like this is a film that is devoid of religious and supernatural content. But the role of religion is not to be the exorcist, this supreme battle between the forces of good and evil. It's this tangible thing that has kept him and his mother separate for all these years. And I think the most interesting thing about Rosalind Lee is the idea that in a lot of ghost stories, what gets thrown away with one single line, every ghost, every movie about a possession or haunting has one line where they're like, oh, spirits with unfinished business, ghosts with unfinished business. They just throw that away. Oh, a lot of times it's because they have unfinished business. And this movie explores, spends, you know, almost an hour and a half exploring how you come to have unfinished business and what that unfinished business looks like. It is taking that one idea that seems so common and just for granted in a lot of horror movies. And it's saying like, what does it mean for somebody to actually have unfinished business? And what does that, how could that be so powerful as to keep them tethered to the earth? By the end of Rosalind Lee, you're like, no, I get it. I understand what that means now. Yeah. And the, um, it's, to me, like, so watching it again today after many, many years, um, it's a very, it's very much the type of film that rewards repeated viewings. There are little things like there's a scene in the, uh, towards the, the, the middle-ish, uh, part, um, you know, 60% of the way through the movie where he's, uh, looking at the angel figurine that miraculously appeared on top of the TV and it looks at him and, I never noticed that mm-hmm. until today. And I feel like the film does this amazing job of, like I said, rewarding these repeated viewings, but also just uh, taking these two, as I, you know, as I said in that review, these two uh, characters and putting them into these scenarios. So you have Leon who is, returning to his home and for him it's just like okay i'm returning to my mom's house after she died to deal with her affairs and then he discovers just you know for the context for the listeners he discovers that oh crap she's been buying all of my stuff and this is her connection to him almost her way of supporting him throughout his career um you know he ended up leaving because he didn't approve of her faith she played that that horrible game of candles with him and he ultimately left uh, uh, Brad, for for people mm-hmm. that are listening but haven't, what is the game of candles? Uh, so the game of candles is um, uh, I don't I don't think it's like fully explained in the movie, uh, but it involves holding your hand to to the flame as a test of faith. Well, and then uh, what happens at the end of it when the lights the candles go out? Um, she uh, you're gonna have to remind me. I'm, oh yeah, I'm kind of, so I'm gonna be drawing a blank now. No problem. I'll I'll take over. So the game of candles yeah. is basically these candles are lit, and it, between Leon and Rosalie, you have a mother saying, you know, do you believe in God and do you believe in religion? And Leon did not. So kind of every time he said no, I think like a candle went out, and basically his she mother would say, she would right. a candle. So then his mother would say the angel statue that is referenced throughout the film. And if you look at the poster, that's the angel statue as well is looking at Leon the whole time. And the mother says, when the candles go out, the angel's not going to protect you anymore. And she'll turn your back on you. So that's like the whole significance is kind of like when the lights go out, if, if you don't say you believe by the time the lights go out, basically God has turned his back on you and you're fucked. (laughs) So that is the game of candles. 
Yeah, and I and, I, and now, that, now that you've said that out loud, actually, if you don't believe by the time the lights go out, I'm like, oh, there we go. That's <laughs> that's a pretty good summary of the film itself. It I, I absolutely love though how, and then this is one of the reasons I love the movie so much is that on the one hand you have Leon who throughout his whole life he's being resistant to the religion and the pain that it inflicted upon him and how the the angel cult that his mother was a part of led to his father's death. And on his side, the whole movie is him basically resisting his mother's urge to believe in all of this. And it's not until the ending, and I know, Matt, you said you wanted to kind of touch upon the final lines of the film, where throughout the entire movie, she's like, you know, you need to believe, you need to believe, you need to believe. And then in the final lines of the film, it's almost like this cathartic moment where she realizes, you know, she fucked up in a way. It's like, what what is life you know, she, she, she wanted her son to come back. Uh, but she also wanted him to come back and believe. And ultimately it just led to these feelings of loneliness that ultimately led to her death. And it's, it's incredibly sad on her part because he, he has this big cathartic moment with the, uh, the, the creature, the cat that shows up as this, uh, I think it, it, it represents a, a, a dual nature uh, depending on, on the character. So for, for Leon, it represents the, the encroaching, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just um, the encroaching burden of religion that he's been trying to avoid. Whereas for his mother, it represents loneliness. And not to shift gears, I do feel that's one of the, the biggest areas where the film gets a little muddled in his message. I believe it could be a little bit more clear. Um, but after watching it again, you know, again, after many years, you know, a lot of it does become a little bit more. Uh, just a little clearer, a little easier to understand in terms of what all of these things represent to each character. Uh, again, a bit of a tangent, but Matt uh, Donato, I actually want to address that directly to you because you had mentioned the final lines in the movie because that's where you get this this shift of you need to believe, you need to believe, you need to believe to all this belief has made me lonely. Yeah, and I mean, even going above all this belief has made me lonely because what you get is Rosalind saying these things and the film ends again with her narration just as the film began. But what we get is her realization, as you've already said, that I've pushed my son away and I wanted him to believe this whole time. But was that number one, was that worth it? And number two, do I even know what does he think of me? Because the last lines of the film go make believe. Sorry, it's her talking again. This is Rosalind talking. And she says things like, make believe it's not believe anymore she says make believe i wanted to make him believe that he cared make him believe these things but then it turns into she's saying to herself that the whole movie we've watched and this is my interpretation at least i don't know if i interpreted this wrong let me know but as she's recounting the entire film that's basically playing in fast forward and she's saying make believe over and over again we don't know if those actions even happened rosalind rosalind dies and she in her head is saying, I hope my death brings my son home. I hope my death brings my son to the angel statue again. And I hope my death 
brings him to believing at some point. But she keeps saying make believe over and over again. So now we don't even know if that happens. And you get this image of a ghost who doesn't even know if her final act brought upon the kind of connection to her son that she never had in reality. And to me, that is fucking crushing. (laughs) And this is why I absolutely love the movie, because I kind of view that in the same light. But I also view it a little differently. I view the whole thing as the entire movie is her spirit. And I kind of see the cinematography of just kind of the floating camera throughout the movie yep. as as Rosalind. It's not just a, a fancy um, cinematic trick. It is It is her body in a way, her spirit floating through the house. But I see the movie primarily as Leon... Uh, being forced to reconnect with this element of his past that he never liked and tried to leave and ultimately overcoming what his mother tried to force upon him. And then in those final moments of the film is Rosalind Lee's realization that all of her belief has been for naught because it pushed her son away. And now pretty much all she can hope for now is that uh, he loves her as much as she loves him. And it's a depressing film. It kind of comes off in this sad, beautiful, like, moment at the end. But as a whole, I think the movie is just, it's crushingly depressing when it comes down to it. I, th- I I kind of find myself be- between the two. It's, it's definitely it's an ending that's opening to interpretation, but I think the common the common theme that all three of us probably find. I mean, to me, you could almost strip away any of the horror elements of this movie, and it would be about somebody at the end of their life realizing that the only reason that they cared about religion was to have something to be able to pass on to their children, and that they kind of that that idea that they the relationship with the children should have superseded any religious beliefs and that they chose wrong. They put the cart before the horse and they have to live with that having lost the kids and ended up with this religion that brings them no comfort in the end of their life. So how that retroactively makes us feel about what we see, I think is, is definitely open for debate. And I think explicitly open for debate. I think there's some ambiguity there, but, um, yeah, it's, it's a movie, it's a, it's a movie about regrets. Um, Mm. and it's a movie about, a movie about a spirit that has unfinished business and can't move well, on. What are your interpretations on the cat? Yeah. So let me, I, I want to get into that really quickly because I love the unexpected nature of the film. And I forget who said it before, but the last will and testament of Rosalind Lee is set up like a ghost story. And it really never becomes one. You know, you get Leon walking into this house that is basically a, a house full of artifacts and these like totems to religion and all these things that look creepy as hell. I mean, if this were in another horror movie, it would kind of be like the cabin in the woods basement where there are, there are all these symbols that you can pick up and whatever one you pick up, that would be a different monster that attacks you. I mean, he walks in and there's this giant wooden sculpture of like a really dulled down man with like owl eyes then you look over and there's like a little Jesus puppet in a nightgown. You look over and there's like a jester puppet. You look somewhere else and there's three statues of angels and crap. Like the, the house itself is chock full of these elements that play into a generic haunted house archetype. And that's what it sets up. 
and we never get that. You never get the scene where something comes to life, sans, as Brad said before, an angel looking. And you get this really great scene where Leon is watching video of his mother's congregation. And you actually do get this like gaze. They're all chanting like gaze upon us or something of this nature, like look at us. And a statue actually does pop its eyes open on the video. And like, I love that shot. It's great. But it never becomes this kind of conjuring film where stuff comes alive and you have to worry about it. These are all just relics. They're all just memories of a past. But then, Brad, as you said, you get this cat that comes back. And that's a cat that comes from the shadows. And you get a neighbor first telling Leon, oh, be careful of the thing that comes out of the woods. There's a sick animal. And, you know, the woods are God's territory. But every once in a while, something comes out and comes for us. And that's such a good line. Yeah. And that it's this creature then. And... To me, it's this like werecat creature where it's like, do you take it more as the religious allegory as uh, was stated before? Is this the impending doom that is coming upon um, Leon because he hasn't believed for so long? I, I think to me, I read it as simple as that. It's the game of candles and Leon has still not professed his faith. He has not said he believed. So this is what he gets for not believing. The angel has turned its back and he's no longer protected. So it's like, great, fend for yourself here, kid. But you also get him calling. Now, the woman on the phone, Anna, I'm assuming that's a wife, right? Uh, I think it was somebody. He, she mentions early on that. Uh, so Rosalind Lee mentions early on in her voiceover that he ended up leaving and he mentions this other woman. Right. My My interpretation is that the other woman is obviously Anna. And uh, they broke up at some point, but they're still on good terms. And she was a doctor. Okay. Yeah, she definitely, she feels like an ex, but an amicable ex. Okay. Because that's, again, to everyone listening, you know, there's a few scenes where Leon is his most scared and his most paranoid. And he's frantic knowing there's something in the house. So he calls Anna. And then you have Anna being the voice of reason saying, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. Just close your eyes and it'll go away. This is all in your head. And this is trauma. Like he's reliving past traumas and letting them invade his life. And he has to have some, you know, that voice on the phone saying, hey, it's not there. Don't worry about it. This is all in your head. To me, it's a traumatic thing. To me, the cat represents these old traumas that are coming back to him. You can take it as the religious aspect because the angels turned its back. To me, it's more a manifestation of what he's now harboring thanks to his mother's treatment. Okay. See, and I will say that part of that too is that if you believe in angels, you also have to believe in demons. You have to believe in the devil. And so the more that you believe in angels, the more you're going to believe in their counterpart as well. The less you believe, the less you believe. So I don't think it's a I don't think it's a coincidence that the more he comes to believe in the validity um, over the course of the film, whether or not it's real or imagined, um, but whether or not as he continues to believe in angels, this other creature starts to influence more of an effect on his life and the less he believes the less present that is it's a nice little parallel for me yeah and um you know like i said earlier i believe that the 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 cat creature represents something different for each of the two characters in the film um uh, donato i agree with your assessment um but more uh less past traumas and more just sort of as the metaphorical representation of you know, believe or else. 
Um, so yeah, I agree with that part where like it is the representation of what happens when the angel turns its back on you. But in the final moments of the film where she's recounting uh, what happened after Leon left, um, she starts talking about how, oh, you know, I saw this thing. It was too big to be a cat. So for Leon, the cat creature, whatever it may be, represents the, um, uh, you know, the darkness of religion that he's trying to overcome and work past that, you know, has all come flooding back now that he's back in this house, um, that his mother from beyond the grave is trying to effectively influence in the house because she's technically still there. Um, for her, it represents the crushing fear of loneliness that ultimately ends up taking her life. Because to her, it appears just as a cat, correct? Uh, yeah, I mean... Too like big, more or less. Too, yeah, yeah, too big to be a cat, I think, is what she says. And then she starts going on about, about the, the, the make-believe component. But the whole thing, to me at least, is basically the cat representing just that crushing fear of loneliness. And ultimately, it leads her to, I'm, I'm assuming kill herself evident yeah. by the uh, shot of her at the end kind of hanging uh, by her arms well yeah so you get the pill yeah. bottle shots and then you mm -hmm. get the crucifixion mm -hmm. imagery at the end so i i do think she was a martyr for her son she, like basically she becomes a martyr by her own doing mm -hmm. just to try and get her it, son to pay attention one last time yeah it's it's weird because i feel like there's almost multiple narratives happening throughout the movie there's a narrative of Leon coming home, discovering that his mom bought everything. And then his mom throughout this entire process is recounting the history with her son and basically almost telling, like you said, almost kind of like in letters telling him you need to believe. And then eventually after he realizes there's a scene where the three candles are on the table and you know, she's saying believe and he's like, no, believe candle goes out. No, believe. And then no. And he wakes up. The cat creature's gone. There's no more, you know, scratches on his back. Uh, he's he's overcome everything. He's overcome the um, the the driving force behind uh, his his mother trying to uh, force the religion on him. And then then it suddenly switches to his mom basically accepting the fact that she is the cause of all of this. She is the one who who screwed things up by trying to force her religion on him. And he overcame it, even though she tried so hard to get him to come back. And all it did was lead to loneliness. And she should have seen it before it came to a head and she ended up killing herself. Um, and that's where the whole issue of the, uh, the her seeing the cat comes into play. It is that loneliness that is is taking over so it's kind of like the to kind of harken back to to a movie like session nine where people are are talking about like so what does gordon represent or well, what does simon represent in the movie and everyone's going to have a different interpretation of it just as i feel everyone is going to have a different interpretation as to what the cat represents in the last will and testament of rosalind lee whereas in this case i just think it it depends on the character you're discussing and i like how the, oh sorry go ahead I was going to say, it's just that I think it's an overarching metaphor for the darkness in one's life and how it just generally impacts your life.
Yeah, and I like how they gave us a physical cat to look at. I mean, a lot of other films might have kept the cat demon in the shadows. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying it's the best CGI. I'm not saying it's the best creation <laughs> of this cat. But I've seen a hell of a lot worse. And the way that they hide this monstrosity, first it's hidden in the shadows, but then it starts chasing Leon. And you get this one mm-hmm. actually pretty fucking brilliant scene where the cat comes into Leon's bedroom. And at first I'm like, oh, they, they're not going to show the cat, you know, up close and personal with Leon. Like, it's not good enough effects to do this. But no, they they go all out. Like, they mm-hmm. pan up and the cat is just... Per- not perched because it's on the ceiling looking down at him but it's just there and it's just looking and then it leans in and it licks his face and he wipes his face when he wakes up and he's got the saliva there and i'm like that was a really effective shot and it was never taken out by the effects so to be able to pull that off and again in this movie that was established as a kind of wispy ghost story i was not expecting any of this i i, I love yeah. the fact that it kept surprising me in these levels what were your thoughts to to slightly change tack? Because I definitely want to mention this before uh, uh, we end things. Uh, the fact that all of the voices on phones and recordings are all Anna and Leon. Um. Well, it, wait. It's all them the entire time. Oh yeah, the voice of the uh, security is yeah. uh, Leon. Oh my god! I thought yeah. it was Julian Richling's voice. Nope. Uh, it's Leon as the voice of uh, the security guy showing him the video and the um. Uh, the hold music you are listening to ascension music for etc etc that's anna's voice so that makes me think more and more that none of this shit happened because oh. this is all from oh. rosalind lee's perspective <laughs> it's all it's all metaphor yeah 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 exactly it, yeah yeah the, the cat's well, not real the cat is merely no, no, a metaphor but right right for for the sake of the story it's it's very much real um oh i mean i'm saying in my interpretation of the ending when i say like this is rosalind lee's it imagining mm-hmm. of how she hoped things went. I think that closes it even more in the sense that those are the only voices that Rosalind Lee knows. So yeah, they're, they're going to be the voices for everything. And this is all manifested in her post death imagination. So again, she, well, can I, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say, can I jump in here? So I want to, I want to throw something out here kind of as, as we're wrapping up our conversation, see what you guys think that ties back together with a lot of what we're talking about no the answer is no i'm gonna do it anyways i was being polite i'm letting our listeners know what's about to happen um so i saw this actually back in 2012 it played at the anthology film archives in new york city which is a great venue especially for things like this um the at the time i was going back and reading some of the stuff that i'd written about it back in the time and i was kind of underwhelmed i get the impression i don't know it was like a long time ago but i get the impression that i was sort of underwhelmed the set design obviously stood out to me but i described in a write-up that i did i described the story as sort of thin which is a little stupid because it isn't uh but as i was watching it this time i think the thing that sort of unlocked it for me and i'm always impressed at how one read on a movie or like one parallel or like one way of approaching it can unlock an entire film for you. The thing that I found myself coming back to over and over and over and over again for the last Will and Testament of Rosalind Lee was video games, in particular independent horror, and thinking about the way that it was structured with sort of the cutscene format of the floating camera and the voiceover as you're telling stories, the fact that you have one central environment where a character, um, you know, not a lot of overt action happens, but the character continues to engage with the environment and the environment starts to change over time. To me, there was a lot of 
you know, Silent Hill, The Room, independent video game type stuff. Like a lot of that logic is baked into the storytelling of The Last Will and Testament of Rosalind Lee. And when I found myself thinking about it from that point of view, I was like, this makes so much sense to me. And I understand because a lot of those video games are dealing with ideas of grief and loss and they're dealing with concepts of, you know, like blending the supernatural with very real human emotions. That kind of unlocked this film for me and made me understand in a better way what it was going for. So how do you feel about Rosalind Lee as kind of like an indie horror game, a Japanese horror game, like this thing that, that adheres to some of the logic that we're used to in horror video games? I think indie is the word there because like when I think Correct. Silent Hill, that's more the haunted aesthetic. Um, but there's so much good indie horror that, of course, I, I mean, the names are escaping, escaping me right now. But you play these games that are hinged on life, death, trauma, depression, and these kind of themes and there's never an overarching baddie there's never an overarching anything you just kind of like wander through a house finding clues and you learn more about yourself as the character than you do fight demons so yeah that's actually a really good you know it's not fatal frame or something of that nature but it's definitely one of these character driven kind of self-discovery games i i I, that's a really good uh comparison there because the puzzle, the puzzle element that you talked about, Brad, watching it this time, I was like, oh, this is, there is a, pu-. like, you could, like you would in a video game, wander through and see the the writing on the wall that says, if you drop a, if you drop a spoon, you're visited by a man. If you drop a knife, you're visited by a woman. If you drop a fork, you're visited by either, a, by something that isn't man or woman. He drops a fork later on and something knocks on the door. There are all these little, like, cutbacks and circle backs and bits of puzzle logic in the film and i was like oh yeah like i feel like i'm playing a really smart one of those indie non-combat driven video games Mm -hmm. i i mean i never even thought of the idea of video games when watching this movie i can definitely see that but I, i i can definitely see how it's you know when you go play through a video game again and you kind of come to a different conclusion based on, you know, a direction that you take or something like that. Maybe that is mirrored in a way in watching this again and being like, oh, I didn't see that part. And that's going to completely change my interpretation of the film. But I think in the end, the big takeaway here is the fact that this is the type of movie that rewards repeated viewings. There are going to, it's, it doesn't lay anything out for you. It doesn't say like, oh, this is exactly what's happening. You, it's this is exactly what the cat means this is exactly why she's doing the voiceover etc etc it's the type of film where you're going to watch it and depending on even just your state of mind at the time can completely interpret uh or influence how you interpret the film um not to to kind of steal away from your video game comparison there but it's it's why I believe the movie deserves more love uh, and why I believe I'm just completely shocked that there's no reviews of the film on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. I I think before we, I think that's going to be the next thing we jump into and that's how we're going to end it. But uh, before we do thinking about the video game still, this is like a video game movie. If it were just side quests, that's, that's (laughs) how I see it. It's you don't do any of the combat. You don't do any of like the quote unquote fun stuff. But you do all the inspiration, right? But you do all the important stuff and you do all the collecting and you actually put together a whole story instead of going in guns blazing and forgetting about all the other shit. Like when I played the last doom, I didn't care about finding all the tapes. I didn't care about finding all the dolls and stuff like that. I just went through and blasted my way. Exactly. I just (laughs) blast my way through. But if you actually take the time to put all the pieces together, as you said, Matt, it becomes a full story and everything works together. 
So it's like, yeah, you can go through and not worry about all the side quests and you can blaze through and shoot all the bad guys. And sure, that's fulfilling enough. Or you can sit there, you can take your time, and you can unlock all the components that build an entire story around the action. And sure, we don't get as much of the action in Rosalind Lee, but at least you get the story and at least that's the best parts of it. So there we go. So there's our final word on this is that the last will and testament of Rosalind Lee. Rosalind Lee is for the people that read all the books in Morrowind, like open yes. every room and they're like, oh, cool. <laughs> or collected all the tapes in Friday the 13th. Correct. Can I, can I make one more quick comment before we uh, do it? Change. So um, the one thing I, I, I truly love about this movie is that religion is deeply personal. Uh, everyone is going to have their own unique views on what religion is and what it means to them and how important it is uh, it is to them in their in their daily lives. And I love this movie so much in a way that every time you view it, your opinion of it or your interpretation of it is going to be colored in part by where you are in your life vis-a-vis your relationship to religion. I would imagine that someone who grew up with no religion is going to have a different interpretation of how Leon reacts to everything than someone who who grew up in a highly religious household and truly believed throughout the process. And, you know, that doesn't make it a good or a bad movie. It's just, to me, it makes it an interesting movie. And that's why I think it's it's such a fun watch and such a a good discussion film because everyone is going to have a unique take on what it all means because ultimately what it means to them is going to be colored by their their opinions their beliefs their history with religion and and that's just awesome to me to me that is that's what makes good horror so i'll leave it with that (laughs) yeah this is normally the part of the show where we'd end by saying do we agree this should be uh this this deserves a bigger audience, but I think we've we've already answered that question pretty thoroughly. I feel like yeah, and I think Matt, we te- we kind of toyed last year or last year. Wow, sorry, last uh, podcast episode with a different question. You know, why was this forgotten? And as, as Brad said, why does this have zero reviews on Rotten Tomatoes? Because this is a movie that we're talking about, basically a 2012 festival release that's not super long ago. So Rotten Tomatoes is plenty around. Plenty of critics were on there going to festivals and as i read down i mean it had one two three four five six like six different festival showings you've got morbido you've got stockholm international st louis um razor field razor reel and bruges i never heard of but you have all these film festivals and how didn't this get at least one review i think that's a brilliant question because i don't know i feel like the horror community is really good at finding these and and reviewing them and especially horror journalists so how did this not get up there i think in the end a lot of it just had to do with um it was snatched up by a then relatively small distribution company and just got very little release to it i mean as you said it only played what like six film festivals yeah uh i mean yeah, obviously I'm going to tell your ride, but we were small. That was like our third year. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're not um, even listed here. So that, that's another thing. So it's played more than six then in that case. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, it, it didn't play. I mean, Morbido is probably the biggest one on that list that uh, uh that you named. But, you know, just it didn't get seen by the right people at the right time and then eventually fizzled out. And then it went straight to DVD. 
Um, cause this was, I think before streaming became like as big as it is. Yeah, I, I think so too. So it went straight to DVD. It's not on Blu-ray as far as I know. Um, it didn't get a huge PR push. So it just somehow slipped under the radar, which is a shame because every once in a while you get that under the radar film that just completely blows you away. Yeah. But like, and I think that, hold on, there, well, there's... <laughs> just no, to make ahead, a quick point. I am not the only fucking review on a movie titled Apocalypse, yet this has no Rotten Tomatoes reviews. That is, I don't even know how that's a thing. So that that's where I think um, it's worth noting. So we talk about on the show Certified Forgotten, we talk a lot about film critics or movies that film critics didn't review, um, things that didn't get onto Rotten Tomatoes. But I think there's a flip side of that coin too, which we're all super familiar with, which is the idea that the film... Um, the parts of the film publications that deal specifically with horror are not necessarily granted access um, to things like Rotten Tomatoes in the way that that others might be. There is, I don't think that horror is some giant victim. I don't think that we, you know, we're out here writing about stuff and it's not getting seen or anything like that. I'm not going that far, but I think there is a bit of a credibility gap because a lot of people that write about this stuff, um, it tends to be a little less. You know, it tends to be more of a labor of love. A lot of horror sites, um, even ones that are big, some of my favorites are labors of love. They don't necessarily pay their writers. They're working with whatever they can get. And that kind of stuff doesn't tend to get Rotten Tomatoes certification. So they're sort of kept out there, even though that what they're writing is quality. And those that those labors of love sites, they're also ephemeral. They can be here in a few years and gone afterwards. If you scroll through some of the, there are reviews of The Last Will and Testament of Rosalind Lee. If you look at Google, there are some. Um, There are even some by what are now big sites like Dread Central. Uh, But back in the day, smaller sites, publications that never quite got there or might've died out since. I think The Last Will and Testament of Rosalind Lee is also sort of a testament to the this corner of the industry that that blends in a way that even mainstream that other types other genres of film don't that like enthusiast slash professional thing and i think that that gets treated really harshly um by rotten tomatoes and by the publications that they certify for that so i think that's part of the challenge of what we're doing is also making sure that we're saying yes these films aren't getting attention but they're also getting attention from publications that are being kept outside of the rotten tomatoes community and that is oftentimes equally as bad as a film that just isn't covered at all you know what that is matt what's that certified fucked up that is certified fucked up yes it is uh well anybody have anything else they want to say i didn't i didn't mean to like ramble and end the conversation there no i think that addresses exactly what i was kind of bringing up so i i think that is a good end to it and yeah i with our original questioning this should not be forgotten my fucking god watch this movie feel something it is on shutter so for those of you that were wondering well is it so small how do i watch it it's on shutter you have a shutter subscription Wait, no, it's, it's on Shutter. It's on, it's on Shutter. I didn't. I googled uh, where this is streaming, and Shutter didn't come up, so I actually paid for it. And I have a Shutter yeah, subscription. What do I? <laughs> <laughs> what <shit>. do I? Because <laughs> right. usually Shutter is good at that too. If I Google it, because uh, Google has this great function now, where if you just Google the movie title and streaming after it, it'll tell you everywhere it's streaming, and Shutter usually comes up. So. I'm curious why I didn't come up for this, but thank you for letting us know because I spent $4 on it. And hey, you know what? I'm happy I did because I gave them that $4. I would like to oh, remind yeah. my co-host, my guest, and anyone listening that doesn't already know, JustWatch.com, it's also on an app, is your best friend. It will let you know what streaming platforms, paid or free, 
free subscription based uh, a movie is. So anytime you have a question about a film, if you want to know where it is, download the Just Watch app or go to justwatch.com and enter the title there. That's what I did. I didn't know where it was. And it did show me that it was streaming on Shutter and available as paid on a bunch of other platforms. So How much did uh, Just Watch give you for that advertisement? Uh, they, <laughs> about as much as Disney Plus gave me. Ah, yes. All right. Uh, Brad, for people that want to follow you on social media, that want to hear your thoughts about the horror genre and maybe get a sneak peek of the work that you're putting into next year's Telluride Horror Film Festival, what are some what are some good ways to follow you? Or if they want to see Jellybean, of course they want to see Jellybean. Where do they follow you on social media? <laughs> Uh, you can just follow me at at Brad A. McCarg. Um, and right now that's about it. <laughs> nice. I'm 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 I, I've I've focused all of my efforts on on ranting and being the lone dissenting voice on Twitter. So And occasionally you get permanently banned from Twitter, and that's fun too. Occasionally. I'm trying to tone that down a bit. Just don't threaten to kill your brother again, jokingly. <laughs> Matt Donato, uh, people want to read your review of Apocalypse or anything else that we've mentioned on the podcast. What's the best way to follow you? Just going to make it easy. Follow me at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd, and I will let you know everything that I write on all the sites I write for. Nice. As for me, you can follow me on social media at Lab Splice. That's L A B S P L I C E. Um, I sometimes remember to update my letterbox, so you can follow me over there too if you want. Uh, But the only thing I'd say before we wrap up is if you've enjoyed what you've heard today or any other day, please leave us a review. It takes us an hour to record, two hours to edit, but it only takes you 30 seconds to leave a positive review. That distribution of labor is insanely in your favor and you should take advantage of it. So (laughs) iTunes, Stitcher, whatever your podcast of choice is, say something nice about us or say something mean about us. We'd rather just know that you're listening. All right, Brad, thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, We'll hope to have you back on the next time you feel passionate about a film, which puts us probably at 2023. Um, I'm just going to say thanks for having me, but you know what? You can go fuck yourself. Fair enough. It's a good episode for Monocle because for me, it's expected. It's never expected from Monocle. (laughs) I just, I save my, I save my barbs for when I know they'll do the most damage. (laughs) This is true. All right. Thanks, everybody. Matt Donato, take us out. Uh, Do I have to do my thing again? Why not? It's our thing. Do 